I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week, uh, we're talking with Marika Rose about her new book, A Theology of Failure. Um, the Marika Rose episode that we did a long time ago, man, I wish I knew what number it was now, <laughs> is probably one of the most popular, <laughs> and I'm super psyched that she is back on the show. Um some of the stuff that she has written about failure and theology and just like what it means to be a Christian has been some of the most formative ideas of me for me uh, recently, I guess, when it comes to theology and understanding my Christianity. So uh, I'm really excited to hear f- more from her. Yeah, same. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm really happy to have this book now, actually, because it helps me write a lot of things in my dissertation that I couldn't figure out how to say. So it's a great, great episode, great book. Um, encourage people to get it. It's from Fordham. Um, the subtitle is Zizek Against Christian Innocence, um, which may either be attractive or not attractive to you, I guess. Um, but in either case, uh, Marika has done, I think, a pretty special thing. It's one of the few uh, theology books that we have even talked about <laughs> on this podcast uh, with, with an author. And uh, I think it's great. People should like legitimately pick it up. It's a real life Magnificast endorsement. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 100% endorse this book. 10 out of 10. Great theology inside this book. Um, but before we get to the episode, I guess we have two quick announcements. Um, the first thing is that uh, in case you didn't know, we've been doing a podcast called The Damnificast this summer where we watch episodes of the show Damnation and talk about them. And it's pretty cool. It's uh, for Patreon subscribers only. So if you want to get that, uh, get those episodes, you gotta get, you gotta get on Patreon and give us, I think, like a dollar or something. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, also, to be one hundred percent transparent, right now we're on a little bit of a hiatus with the show because uh, Dean's traveling, and uh, you know we need a second to catch up. So um, we'll be back with the Damnificast early in July. Uh, another quick announcement too that's uh, Patreon related is that uh, in July 8th, we're starting the Magnificast book club where we're going to read communism in the Bible by Jose Miranda. And it should be pretty cool. So we'll start on July 8th. We'll probably schedule like a Google hangout or something that week and uh, talk about the book and then just work our way through it together. Cool. Let's go to Marika. 
thanks again for coming on the show, Marika. We're glad to have you back. Uh, it's been quite a while since we had you on uh, before even our 50th episode, I think. And it's still like one of our most listened to episodes of all time, maybe even the most listened to. So you're a pretty popular guest. <laughs> when we, well, that's uh, nice to hear. <laughs> it's true. Um, when we have authors uh, come on the podcast, as you know, we always ask them to give a, an elevator pitch for their project. And today we're talking about your book, A Theology of Failure. So could you give us an elevator pitch for that book? What were you trying to do with it? Uh, what do you hope that you accomplished with it? And, you know, what's it about for people who've never seen it or read it? Yeah, so... Um... My idea is that a lot of the time what you find theologians doing is um, trying to say, obviously you look at Christianity and it seems like it's quite bad, people do terrible things, uh, but what we really need to do is just find the kind of good version of Christianity and if we can find that good version then we can be good Christians and not bad Christians and we can kind of disavow responsibility for all of the bad things that Christians have said and done uh, throughout history um, and really what my book is trying to do is think what would what would happen if we took seriously the possibility that those bad things are part of what Christianity is um, and thought about what Christian identity might look like uh, if we really take a kind of materialist approach to it and say Christianity is the sum total of all of the things that people have said and done in the name of Christianity, uh, including the bad stuff. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like the book that I read for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we'll definitely get some of those big ideas here in a little bit. Um, it is definitely an approach to Christianity that um, the more I've read your work is it's become like a really big idea for me. So it's cool to hear it uh, in book form and hear you talk about it now. But before we get to the exciting stuff about uh, Christians and how they're bad and the sum total of Christianity, um, <laughs> maybe we could talk a little bit about Zizek. Um, so one cool thing about your book is that you read Zizek against Zizek, which is, um, I think, yeah. a pretty Zizekian thing to do, actually. Um, yeah. Why do you take on that strategy? Uh, and maybe more generally, why write a book about Zizek at all? Um I mean, I don't know that I set out to do that. I think um, kind of going into the book, um, my feeling was that one of the kind of questions that animates Zizek's work is uh, what does it mean to be a Marxist given the failures of Marxism in the 20th century? And I guess it felt like that was a kind of useful parallel to the question I was asking, which was what does it mean to be a Christian? But I think kind of where I get to and what I found Zizek helps me think is that, you know, we, we tend to, we often tend to be kind of Platonist. So we tend to think that there is this kind of pure essence of a thing. Uh, and if you can, you can kind of work out what that essence is and by kind of abstracting from material reality. So you can get this kind of pure form either of Marxism or Christianity. Um, but Zizek's argument is that any identity, anything, any set of ideas is always internally consistent and there are always contradictions, there are always antagonisms. Uh, and so you can kind of push at those antagonisms to move that thing, that way of thinking forwards to kind of transform it to uh, open up new possibilities. Um, yeah, and it's been interesting. I feel like when I started, when I started the project, um, Zizek was very kind of uh, fashionable uh people really loved him and then over the kind of course of the project it feels like the tide has turned and so there's been this kind of shift uh, so i sort of got to the end and i was sort of thinking oh no what am i doing writing a book about zizek in this moment but then of course the other half of the book is about christian theology so what on earth are you doing with that um so everything is terrible but maybe you can kind of use those terrible things to do something interesting and productive <laughs> uh i love that that's a really good tagline everything's terrible but maybe you could use those things anyway. <laughs> um, well, speaking of that, uh, maybe that's a good way to at least start talking more about the vision of Christianity that you have in the book, um, especially because our show, we read the intro since you've been on, and it opens with a bunch of past quotes from different episodes, and you're always the, the last quote in the, in the new intro. 
Um, and we actually have gotten several emails from people asking us what episode that quote is from. And in it, you ask us to think about what it would mean to consider Christianity this thing that you're you're always betraying some aspects of it and being faithful to it in other aspects. And that's a really big theme in your book. Uh, and it, I think it really like resonates with people and it opens some things up. So maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about that. You know, as you've now done a whole book project on on that line <laughs> that takes, you know, 30, 30 seconds to say at the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> what do you think now? It feels like a lot of kind of fights about what Christianity is about sort of take place on the ground of like, well, what, who's really being faithful to Christianity? Like, are you being more faithful to Christianity if you adopt a kind of social justice Jesus or a trad Catholic Jesus or, uh, yeah, like so, and, and a lot of those kind of arguments and debates play out along the lines of faithfulness. Like I am reading the Bible more faithfully than you. If you really understood historical context or if you really read it properly, then you'd see that I am correct. Um, and for me, that kind of model of fidelity is actually part of the problem, um, partly because of the way that it kind of assumes this coherent ontology where there's just this kind of pure form of Christianity floating around in the sky um, that we can disconnect from actually existing Christianity. Um, and I think uh, something that I don't talk about yeah, that sort of comes out in different ways throughout the book is that I think that one of the things that's going on in that is uh, a kind of metaphor of sexual fidelity as well. Um, so I'm quite influenced by um, Marcella Althaus-Reed um, and her argument that uh, she says theology is, is a sexual act, that theology always kind of works by and with kind of metaphors of sexuality and of sexual propriety, um, which obviously also then kind of ties up with ideas about racial purity. So we have all these ideas about purity and fidelity, and you look at what happens in Christianity. We sort of tell this story about Christianity, you know, uh, you have Jesus and he passes on this message to the fathers who kind of faithfully hand it down. And if we kind of trace the proper lineage then we've got the real thing but I think the idea that there is a kind of proper lineage is, is so bound up with unhelpful idea that there is a kind of pure identity that we can get to um and so really I think if you look at what Christianity actually is you see it as this uh, massive, messy set of ideas and actions and people and organizations. Um, and really the kind of, the coherence doesn't come from, there's this thing that all Christians have said and done throughout history. And so I just don't think that there is a coherent Christian tradition such that you can be straightforwardly faithful to it because the bad stuff is not just, you can't just easily separate it out from the good stuff. The stuff that's that's good and productive is often kind of really formed by and dependent on the stuff that's bad and violent. And so you can't, you can't be faithful to any part of the Christian tradition without also betraying other things because it's not, it's not a coherent thing that isn't this kind of one thing that isn't this pure core of it. Yeah. That is such a, a challenging, but also um, kind of helpful idea to in understanding that, uh, you're never going to get a pure good Christianity without understanding the other side. And I, I think that's yeah. a, an important lesson that Christians ought to learn. Um, that insight, along with a lot of the philosophy and theology, is all very cool. Um, but uh, towards the end in your conclusion, your book is also a lot about trying to reorient the ways that people think about Christianity and their relationship to the church. Yeah. Um, you, you know, just with exactly what you said, you, you kind of sticking with it through even the bad stuff. Yeah. Um, so in, in light of that, what do you hope that your book does for uh, people who are Christians um, and uh, how they relate to the church in general? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, who knows, right? Like you send a book off into the world. I think one of the things that has uh, animated a lot of the things I'm doing is, is a sense that um, 
a lot of the kind of uh, progressive versions of Christianity that in some ways I might be drawn to or uh, recognize some of myself in. I, I feel like there's often this part of this idea that there is this kind of good version of Christianity. There is this thing that you can kind of get to that gets away from all of that bad stuff is that, that being a Christian becomes about being a good person. Um, I think we talked a bit about this on the last episode I did, but this idea that, yeah, that fundamentally what being a Christian is, is about being good uh, rather than people who aren't Christians, who are bad. Um, and I think that you get obviously versions of that in kind of traditional uh, conservative forms of Christianity. But I think a lot of uh, progressive forms of Christianity do a different version of that. But instead of being good by uh, thinking that gay people are going to hell, you're good by realizing that you're not like the bad Christians who think that gay people are going to hell. And you have understood that really Christianity is this kind of liberating, queer friendly, anti-racist uh, set of ideas. This question of like, how can I be a better Christian being, how can I be more of a good person? Um, how can Christian identity be this thing that makes me feel good about myself um into thinking about like what would it mean for christian for, for being a christian to essentially mean being someone for whom the question of what christianity is as a problem uh that it might be as much about kind of grappling with the ways in which we're formed by a tradition that's really deeply violent that's really deeply racist that's really deeply patriarchal that's really deeply invested in all sorts of really like harmful and uh life destroying uh ways of organizing the world and so what would it mean for being a Christian to be about grappling with that problem, grappling with this bin fire of a tradition that we have inherited. Yeah, I think what I appreciate so much about that too is it exposes a certain problem with some of the rhetoric that happens with progressive Christianity um, that doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, you know, where so um, <laughs> one thing that you often see is progressive Christians saying, well, if you really cared about the family, then you wouldn't ever support Donald Trump separating families or something, or, you know, it's like, uh, Christians who say they're pro-life, like they believe these things because the Bible says it, but they don't believe these other things. And it's this kind of strange rhetorical attempt to appeal to like a, you know, um, a good faith, like unified position on what Christianity really truly is or something that's been betrayed by conservatism or something. Um, but what you're asking us to do is actually like intentionally betray Christianity in like better ways, uh, which I think is a really, really fascinating strategy and, and approach. And I mean, I, I guess, or I'm guessing that one kind of natural question that a lot of people probably ask when they hear that is, well, how do you betray Christianity in such a way that you're still being faithful to Christ or something without setting up this kind of purity narrative or the need for a, a new pure Jesus that you, you know, then have to sort of uh, crucify all over again or something in this like horrible metaphor. Um, yeah, I guess I'm struggling to put it in a way that doesn't end up just recreating the problem that you're that you're addressing. And maybe that's the point. But I'm just curious to hear if you have any reactions to that kind of reaction my, that I myself am having. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, it's about um, like which which problems are your problems and uh, which people are you going to have a fight with about what it means to live in the way that you want to live. So for me to describe myself as a Christian is to say that the problems that I'm grappling with are the problems of the Christian tradition, the nightmare texts, also the ways in which I'm formed by that uh, that to some extent, I still have some desire to be part of a fight with other Christians about what it means to be a Christian, about what we can do uh, with these particular problems. Yeah, so basically to say that, uh, yeah, to be a Christian is to say that um, I am committed to grappling with this particular set of texts, this particular set of institutions, this particular set of people. Um, you know, Christianity is a bin fire, but it's my bin fire. Uh, what can we do with that? Um, yeah.
um, yeah, so it's not like there's this kind of uh, transcendent Christ who we can lay hold of. Um, it's, yeah, that, that Christianity is a problem um, for me that I grapple with, that I commit myself to grappling with in some way. One of the questions that Dean and I thought to ask you um, is, well, I mean, we don't talk about theology much on this podcast because we're not very good at it. Um, but a lot of your book uh, made us think about the state of like, you know, postmodern theology um, since you're intervening in those conversations and pushing them uh, beyond some of the routine debates between like deconstruction and radical orthodoxy, process theology and so on. Uh, one way you do that is by going back to the epiphatic tradition, but in a really creative way, not in an attempt to find true theology or something like that. Um, but how do you think theologians can read older Christian sources without turning out to be reactionaries or like, you know, grasping on to one idea uh, of Christianity too too tightly? I feel like I kind of want to say two things, and I don't know that I fully worked out like how to make them make sense with one another um, and I think one of the things is like I don't think there's a right way to read a text or a right way to be a Christian um, and I think that's um, yeah and what you often find in both like conservative and liberal forms of Christianity is this kind of claim to have worked out like what was really going on in the tradition um and so part of me is i sort of i feel like what would happen if instead of yeah instead of saying um yeah what does this text really say like what can you do with it how can you use it to think more interesting things and i think that one of the things that's kind of interesting and in lots of ways helpful about christianity as a tradition is that both it's a tradition that's really deeply formed who we are now in the world that we live in so i think there's a lot of scope for doing a kind of genealogical thing with that like how how do these ideas shape the world that we inhabit today but I think there's also a thing where you we have a tradition that has preserved a bunch of texts that are not written in the context that we're in and are kind of slightly at odds with it in certain kinds of ways um, that come into conflicts and I think that that potentially opens up the space for thinking things in new ways and imagining different possibilities um i've been thinking about it a little bit in terms of like i've not actually done much proper engagement with um francois laruel but uh through uh various people um anthony paul smith in particular who's written about laruel i've been thinking about this idea of like what happens when you treat things not as like the truth about things but kind of as material that you can just pick up and do useful things with what can you make with these materials um but the other thing that i think is frustrating to me about um a lot of these kind of attempts to go back to the tradition um is that it sometimes feels like uh you lose a sense of conflict and contradiction um, and i think that's particularly that's particularly frustrating to me in a lot of like postmodern theology so particularly people like john caputo and Catherine keller is this attempt to kind of go back to texts um so Catherine keller for example goes back to read nicholas of cusa and she really liked the stuff about the coincidentia oppositorum so like the coincidences opposites and paradox um, which weirdly is also what radical orthodoxy likes in Nicholas of Cusa and she sort of wants to think about this kind of way of doing this kind of liberal Christianity that's all about like paradox and complexity but she doesn't grapple with the ways in which Nicholas of, of Cusa is writing in a context in which Christianity is enacting all sorts of violence in the world and think about the ways in which his ideas are bound up with that violence so I think there's there's a kind of double thing that I would want to do which is one you have to do this kind of genius theological work of thinking about like what have these ideas done in history how have they been bound up with what's materially going on in the world in the church in this period of time like how how are these ideas caught up in particular kinds of violence um, and then also what can you do with them what kind of creative possibilities are there and actually like 
it's Zizek is interesting because he sort of is a Marxist without having really without being very Marxist. Like he doesn't really talk about Marx much. There are loads of Marxist concepts that seem like they would be quite useful for him that he just doesn't engage with. But I do think there's this kind of fundamental dialectics at work that that things progress not by conflict and contradiction and by antagonism. Um, so then you can kind of do useful and interesting things out of those conflicts. But you have to recognise that there really are conflicts. You have to recognise that. Um, the way that Dionysius thinks isn't just this kind of nice liberal postmodern vision, but is actually really bound up with particular kinds of violence. Um, and when you think about that, you potentially can also do interesting new things. Yeah, it really seems to me like you uh, take the idea of a materialist approach to theology more seriously than a lot of other scholars, both like Marxists and theologians. Um, I mean, the the methodology that you sort of employ is this really creative uh, way of of reading all of these things in their own contexts, and then, like you were just saying, uh, with respect to Anthony Paul Smith and Laruel, you know, taking them up as materials yourself, like they're not sort of frozen in in this you know uh, theological space that kind of can't be touched anymore. Um, maybe our our material conditions demand you know different kinds of, of uses or something. Um, and I wonder if you could maybe speak more about that. You know, what does it mean to think about theology materially? Uh, I don't know if you would say that this is a materialist approach to theology. I'm kind of imposing that in some ways and thinking as a, as a Marxist might, I guess. But uh, yeah, could you say more about that kind of methodology or, or how you're thinking about these uh, these thinkers in the Christian tradition, um, given you know those broader conversations around the material and, and using theological material? Yeah, and I mean, I think I think there's an extent to which I'm like, on my way to being more of a materialist in the book and I, I feel like it's it's sort of part way to being a materialist theology and I think uh you know partly actually because I was kind of mostly reading Zizek I wasn't reading much Marx uh, and I think probably how I would think about that now is a little bit different than how I would have thought about it when I was reading the book but I think um I mean I think in lots of ways like where the book is located is within a kind of broader set of people who are trying to think about um trying to think about political theology in the sense of that kind of Carl Schmitt idea that all significant concepts of the modern state are secularised theological concepts, so that there is, there's a connection between these abstract theological ideas and then what is going on materially and how society is organised, how production is organised, how power is organised. Um, and so sort of trying to always think about theology in that, that sense that that theology is always political theology. It's always, you know, uh, it's it's superstructure and it's always bound up to the, with the base. Uh, and if you want to think about what theological ideas are doing, you have to think about like what the relationship is between these abstract ideas and the conditions of in which those ideas are produced, but also the kind of broader ways that societies in which they're produced are organised. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? I've sort of slightly lost track of what the beginning of it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean. I sort of lost track of the question as I started asking it. So I think that was really good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm just sort of, a, I think as a person who doesn't read a, a ton of theology, but I think I'm kind of theologically literate in, in some degree. Uh, like the only reason that I ever read theology is to kind of find out like, you know, why would a person like Gustavo Gutierrez write a book like A Theology of Liberation or something? Um, and that's kind of like where it stops for me is like I'm interested in this guy because he's, I don't know, like invested in a struggle that I think is important and because I'm a Christian and so is he or something. Um, but I guess like <laughs> what you're doing is so much more creative or like innovative because it's asking that question, but it's also asking a lot of other questions of like how could we kind of repurpose these things um, you know, like intentionally heretically in some kind of way. Um, 
And I, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about that, except that I just find it really attractive and, and very kind of, I mean, you, uh, all that to say, I think you demonstrate that it's a useful way of thinking these things through. Um, so Marika, towards the end of your book, you have um, a few really interesting lines that I, I like and will probably end up repeating to myself quietly in church sometimes, um, <laughs> where uh, there's this idea where like, um, uh, you, you say that, what would it mean to start Christianity from the perspective of the heretic or the witch? And then there's this other part where you say, like, you know, we have to become stumbling blocks. And I think that's a really interesting reappropriation of uh, of the gospel. I, I wonder, like, what you would say, though, like, okay, so in um, in the context that I'm in, like, it's a, a, a Christian, I, I teach at a Christian school, and it's, like, pretty contentious with regard to a lot of social and political issues, especially when it comes to, like, LGBT yeah. students or uh, like the racial justice or something, right? And in a lot of ways, I see the worst parts of Christianity playing themselves out um, in real, real serious situations where they become urgent. Um, how would you? I don't know. What What do you think it means to become a stumbling block in places where there's like a like a Christo fascism or a white supremacist Christianity that's already sort of hegemonic? What does it mean to to be a stumbling block in those places? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it for me so one of the things I take from Zizek is that like what is what is excluded from a particular kind of identity is often the truth of that identity so um and that in order to uh stop excluding those people that group uh you can't just kind of broaden the bounds to be more inclusive you have to actually like revolutionize things um and so I think but for me, one of the problems with what liberal theology often does is it says, well, we can, you know, we can include this group of people who've previously been excluded without fundamentally rethinking how any of these things work. Um, and for me to kind of go with the Zizekian reading is to say that um, a church that is homophobic is deeply structured by that homophobia. The homophobia is not incidental. Uh, a Christianity that is white supremacist is not that's not incidental it's deeply structured by it and so in order to think about what it would mean to like uh revolutionize uh you both have to think about the ways in which uh those forms of exclusion are constitutive they are they are the foundation stone on which the edifice is built in some ways and then you have to think about well what would it look like to um start from the perspective of the thing that is excluded um and i'm not I'm not really sure that I can think at the moment of an example of what that would look like in a Christian context. And um, one, one example that I've been thinking of um, in terms of Zizek and uh, uh, is, um, and if I think I talk a little bit about, about in the book. And um, so I think that one of the ways in which Zizek fails is that he, his argument is essentially that uh, what you get in uh, the European legacy is this universalism that is the kind of the condition of possibility for universality in general, that it's the thing that will make possible kind of revolution and communism and all these kinds of things. And I think that one of the the kind of serious uh, flaws in his work is that he can't recognize the ways in which those Euro uh, universal ideas that you find in the European tradition are actually premised on anti-blackness. Um, and he picks up on Susan Buckmore's uh, reading of um, Hegel in Haiti and sort of talks about it in some quite frustrating ways. Um, and um, Buckmore basically thinks that uh, Toussaint, uh, when he declares that everyone is a French citizen, therefore everyone has access to liberté, égalité, fraternity, like that's the kind of true 
true realization of the Enlightenment legacy. And then that is betrayed by Dessaline, who uh, murders the whites and uh, declares that everybody is black. Uh, and one of the things that I argue in the book is that actually, on a kind of Zizekian reading, you would have to say that it's Dessaline who is uh, closer to the truth of the European uh, universality, these ideals of liberty, equality, and freedom, that, that those things are premised on the exclusion of blackness and therefore uh, the way to uh revolutionize that legacy is precisely is to destroy whiteness and uh universalize blackness so it's partly about thinking about what is what is this form of christianity excluding and what would it mean to reorganize the whole thing so that it uh starts from the point of what it excludes rather than just trying to sort of broaden out and be more inclusive that's a really great way to um kind of point us toward a, a real example and, and see what you how your theological approach kind of helps us think that through. Um, I can sort of, I'm, I'm imagining repeating that to a number of uh, progressive Christian types that I know, and <laughs> I'm just trying to think about how that might go. Um, but maybe maybe this is a good time to actually mention uh, a, a weird thing about Caputo that comes up in your book and that I was glad that you, you talked about. You promised me that you were going to on Twitter, and uh, it turns out that you did. Um, so in your book, uh, you talk about how, like, Caputo in particular, John Caputo, uh, who for people who don't know, he's a, he's a deconstructionist, Derridian theology type, um, who's kind of influential in certain Christian circles. Uh, Caputo has this understanding of hierarchies in institutions and how they're problematic. And that understanding leads him to this kind of like, he thinks a really radical reformism, you know, that like, we really got to destabilize these institutions that are like, ossified and they don't want to budge or whatever um but in a sort of radical rhetoric it actually makes him unable to talk about like the real material structures that make those institutions possible or what you were just saying you know the very thing that is excluded by them uh he doesn't really think from that position um specifically capitalism so you you mentioned this passage from caputo and it comes out in zizek's discussion of the same passage in a book called versus tragedy then it's farce and the passage is like kind of long but i just want to read it so people know exactly what it is and then kind of see what you um what you might say so uh caputo says this i would be perfectly happy if the far left politicians in the united states were able to reform the system by providing universal health care effectively re redistributing wealth more equi equitably with a revised irs code that's very funny to me effectively restricting campaign financing etc he, he lists a bunch of other things um, and then he says to interview intervene upon capitalism by means of serious and far-reaching reforms if after doing all that, Baju and Zizek complained that some monster called Capital still stalks us, I would be inclined to greet that monster with a yawn. And then Zizek goes back to sort of, you know, respond to that, saying uh, that Caputo has this dream of remaining within the system, but the system is premised on on all these kind of violence, um, you know, violences of capitalism underneath. So I, I, I just, all that to say, I think a lot of what Zizek says is true of progressive Christianity, and you, you kind of try to spell that out a little bit. Um, so I wonder if you could maybe just say some more about how these postmodern kinds of, you know, self-described postmodern kinds of theologies rely on the rhetoric of radicalism or deconstruction to talk about problems in the world or, or in the church or whatever, but it kind of lets them off the hook for talking about real material problems. Um, and I figured, you know, since you're a Marxist and of some kind anyway, and a theologian, uh, I want to know what you make of that trend. You know, how can, can Marxist Christians sort of think through the limitations of a reformist, radical postmodern theology or something that seems really attractive to a lot of people still? Yeah. 
the one thing that I would say, um, and again, I think I talk about this in the book, uh, is that I think what you find in the shift from, in the shift to this kind of, uh, the sort of things that go under the name of like postmodern theology, um, it's for what seems radical actually really just reflects a shift in uh, material production and kind of ideologies that go along with that. So my argument would be that if you, if you're taking like Caputo versus radical orthodoxy, for example, as an example of a kind of liberal progressive Christian versus a conservative reactionary Christian, I think really what you see there is a conflict between uh, Fordism and post-Fordism or between uh like what Foucault talks about as disciplinary societies and what Deleuze talks about as control societies. So uh, mid 20th century, you have this kind of Fordist settlement, right? Uh, and power is organized in quite like discrete places. You go to factories, your time is really tightly regulated. You are watched. Uh, you kind of go to factories, you go to schools, you go to, it's kind of in institutions, power is quite contained. Uh, and it's this particular kind of mode of production. And what you get then with post-Fordism is that a lot of the kind of uh, clear distinctions, and that also works along clear distinctions of um, gender and race, for example. So the kind of Fordist settlement is also about Jim Crow. Um, it's also about a particular, it's also about um, colonialism. It's also about a uh, kind of clear divide between the role of the wife and the home and the role of the husband at work, which of course isn't, you know, women are still working, but the kind of ideology is one of like the, the housewife. And then what you see uh, partly as a, partly in response to various kinds of uh, liberation movements, partly in response to the demands of capital, you see this kind of shift to post-Fordism. And a lot of those kind of really clear, stark forms of violence are uh, taken away, are removed. So a Jim Crow ends, um, you get decolonization, you get women entering the workplace. So you have all these different kinds of shifts. Um, but what happens is not straightforwardly liberation. Actually, what you have is a shift in the way that capitalist violence is working and the way that capitalist exploitation is working. And away from these kind of really clear, stark, visible distinctions and forms of violence, you shift to forms of violence and control that are much more kind of fluid and static and therefore more difficult to pin down. Um, so you see that in various different ways in terms of like race and gender and class. Um, and the forms of control work differently, but that doesn't mean that, that the violence is actually any less. Um, and I think that a lot of what positions itself as kind of radical progressive theology is really theology that reflects that shift to softer forms of violence to, uh, yeah, uh, I think I call it in the book, uh, colonialism with a human face to uh, those, those forms of power sort of reworked, but not taken away. So racism still exists, but it looks quite different. Uh, gendered violence still exists, it looks different, class division still exists. And so, and I think that what you see often kind of culturally is that you do get kind of conflict between the people whose ideas and ways of being in the world are shaped by Fordism and the people whose ideas and ways of being in the world are shaped by Fordism. And it sometimes looks like that's a clash between progressive people and uh, conservative people. But I think actually it's just a lot of the time what's going on is really just a kind of a clash between two different regimes of capitalism. Um, and, it, you know, in the same way that, uh, yeah, capitalism has not ended. And as long as capitalism exists, those forms of violence are going to continue to exist. And so I think that that often what postmodern theology does is it kind of settles for a post-Fordist form of violence rather than thinking about what it would actually mean to revolutionize, to end capitalism, to end the world. Uh, well, shifting gears a little bit, um, I, I brought up the conclusion of your book a few times, and I guess that, that's the part, like I said, uh, we're not really very good at reading theology, but that's the part that really spoke to me because you make a few statements that are really constructive and point towards, I don't know, not like not like hope, but um, 
not like hope because, you know, failure is kind of always part of it, but it points towards something like, um, I don't know, that like outlines what, what it means to do Christianity still. So for example, mm-hmm. in the conclusion, um, you, you say something that I think is pretty cool that, uh, what it means to be a Christian is to be a part of a community that's not defined by a particular figure or a perfect ideal, uh, Christian, but by the question, what does it mean to be faithful to Christ? So again, uh, what, what you're doing is pointing towards something that like is, this is what it means to be a Christian, not necessarily to like emulate one specific person or one specific understanding of a person, but to engage with the discourse. Um, and that's, I think, a really helpful thing. But then you have this other turn that I think is just as interesting, um, where you you use the words to love the church, and you kind of um, lay out a few <laughs> different ways uh, where you parse out what loving the church means. Um, and uh, they're they're pretty interesting. So in one in one paragraph, you say to love the church means to uh, be willing to put it to death, to betray it in the name of what we love in it which is interesting. And then uh, later on that same page, you say to love the church is to be willing to liberate the world from our domination and our control. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this type of love and, um, and like how that, how that parse, how we can parse that out. Yeah. Um, so one of the kind of key sets of ideas that run throughout the book is this distinction that Zizek makes between desire and drive. Um, and essentially his understanding is, everything that exists is internally inconsistent, is incomplete, um, including ourselves, including our communities, including our societies. Um, And there are two different ways of relating to that incompleteness. One is to say, uh, we are incomplete, but there is something out there that will complete us, that will make us happy, that will make us whole. Uh, I think that's a very like classic Christian narrative, right? Like there's this hole in my heart and uh, Jesus is the one who will come and fill it. Uh, But you also see kind of uh, social versions of that. So, uh, if we could just um i don't know if we could if we could just leave the european union then everything would be great for example uh if this person could be elected then these problems will be solved um or you uh find a scapegoat to blame for the reason why your society is not harmonious like if this if we could just get rid of this group of people then everything would be fine everything would be great all of these kind of conflicts and inconsistencies and contradictions would be resolved um For Zizek, that's often the way that we love other people. We say, you know, there's this one person who will complete me, but in order to relate to them in that that way out of desire, you have to kind of turn them into this fantasy object. You can't really kind of grapple with all their complexities, with the fact that they have a kind of internal life that exists separately from you. You're relating to them in a way that's fundamentally quite like solipsistic. It's really just about what can this person do for me? How can they give me what I need? Uh, So you become very unable to see them as they really are. You become very unable to see all of the ways in which they're kind of complicated and flawed and messy. and then for Zizek, the other way of relating to that incompleteness is what he calls um, drive, which is where you start to realize that those inconsistencies and incompletenesses are the condition of possibility of our being, that if we weren't if we weren't incomplete, we wouldn't exist at all. Um, so the kind of paradigm for this in some ways is the, that when you, when you become a subject, when you become conscious, when you're a very small baby, at some point you start to realize that you are separate from the world around you, uh, separate from uh, your primary caregivers. Um, and with that realization, of separateness comes a sense of loss because you no longer feel the sense of being totally one and unified with the world but you also wouldn't exist if you hadn't gone through that process of separation um and so you you can either kind of go spend your whole life pining after this kind of uh 
if I could just get back to what it was like when I was a very small child or I felt like I was totally at one with my mother or the world or the universe then everything would be great or you can say actually this incompleteness is what makes me who I am uh, there isn't anyone out there who will give me this feeling of perfect satisfaction uh, and so instead what I can do is I can enjoy the process of being alive of being a kind of weird mishmash of things that have happened to me and the way that I happen to have internalized that um, and when you are able to start doing that it kind of frees you up to relate to other people in a way that isn't just about treating them as the thing that can kind of fill this fill this hole in your heart that can kind of complete you um and so I, so that kind of works on the level of individual love for Zizek it means that you can become able to see a person with all the kind of flaws and love them anyway um it's a little bit less clear what that looks like on the level of society I guess something like communism somehow uh but then I was trying, sort of trying to think about what what does that mean in terms of the church and I think it is about giving up on this kind of fantasy that you'll find this like pure form of Christianity that will make you feel like a really good person in all the ways that you want to be and instead you can be like you can confront the church as it is and you can recognize that it is messy and inconsistent that it's full of a bunch of people who don't agree with each other uh that it's full of all sorts of practices that are incoherent that it's really caught up with all of uh the ways in which the church is part of and a cause of all sorts of violence in the world um and then you can start grappling with it as a problem um yeah so it's about kind of giving up on this kind of desire for this sort of fantasy version of the church that will solve all of the problems um and actually sort of what would happen if we just really tried to see it as it actually was um, and engage with it in that way. What you're saying just reminds me of this kind of common story, um, more, like increasingly more common, I think, of Christians who had like a really bad time in their own Christian tradition, uh, but they still want to be Christian one way or another. So they join like another Christian tradition and then they take on a certain convert zeal. So maybe you used to be Catholic and then now you're, you know, an, an Episcopal and you're like a proud one because it's like all the good things about the Catholic Church and none of the bad stuff, except that like the Episcopal Church has all of its own kind of like uniquely Episcopal bad stuff. Um, so that's kind of like a weird trend on the one hand. And then the other is the kind of evangelical trend where, you know, dealing with kind of the trauma of Christianity ends up sort of constituting your identity, but in a, in a traumatic way, like you kind of never really get out of it or, or escape it. And I wonder if after having done uh, this book, and I mean, you talk quite a lot about trauma within it too, and the trauma involved in, in Christianity, um, you know, how do you think that Christians who have had like a bad time or been like really wounded by their participation in Christianity might be able to come to an honest kind of, uh, terms of that. I mean, you're not a psychologist. So I'm not asking you to, like <laughs> psychoanalyze everybody, but uh, you know, how how do we like? I mean, all of us have been you know uh, victimized by Christianity one way or another. Uh, some of us worse than others. And how do we kind of, I guess, deal with that in a way that that is honest and and maybe uh, helpful or something? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how willing I am to like generalize this or how helpful it would be, but I think where I'm at is like essentially thinking. Christianity really fucked me up, but it fucked me up in some pretty interesting ways. And, <laughs> uh, and I feel like actually a lot of the people I know who are really interesting are people who are fucked up by Christianity in various different ways. And so I guess the question is like, it's not, it's not so much about like, how do I heal these things? How do I get over these things? Um, for me, the question is like, well, what do I do with that? Um, this is, uh, um, she likes to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the weird thing 
thing about being a person that like so much of who you are is not something that you directly control. Uh, what you most deeply want is not something that you've willed. It sort of is given to you. And so um, for him, the kind of truly ethical position is to assume responsibility for your fate. Um, and I uh, think that essentially that's uh, a version of what Dolly Parton says, which is find out who you are and do it on purpose. Um, and I feel like, you know, lots of us, those of us who've grown up Christian, at least, we didn't choose that. It was something that was kind of given to us. And for better or worse, that's kind of who we are now. And so I think the, the interesting question is, for me at least, is, well, what do I do with that? This is who I am. This is what's what's been given to me. Um, and what do I, what can I do with that? Um, yeah, what kind of weird, interesting things can I make with these materials that have been given to me? Maybe we could like talk a little bit more. Also, I mean, we've talked about uh, the kind of progressive side of Christianity um, and how Christianity's violence gets, I don't know, uh, swept under the rug by certain kinds of rhetorics uh, in progressive Christianity. But you also spend a lot of time complaining about uh, radical orthodoxy in your book, rightly so. Um, and we don't actually talk about that that often on this podcast, I think because it just feels so like beyond the pale sometimes, but, uh, now's probably a good a time as any, especially because Zizek himself has this weird relationship to radical orthodoxy that's, you know, kind of gross sometimes, and I guess interesting in other ways. Uh, so yeah, uh, postmodern theologies have certain ways of, of, uh, denying the violence at the heart of Christianity, but how is that different in something like radical orthodoxy? I mean, you characterized it a moment ago by this kind of interesting way of, uh, theologies that have emerged from different kinds of capitalist economies or, or the dreams of those economies anyway. Um, but what do you think specifically drives people in this kind of radical orthodox direction? Uh, and, and how does it maybe uniquely or differently um, put all that violence uh, behind itself? Uh, or in some cases, I guess, like owning it, but in the worst possible way? Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, my hope is that like radical orthodoxy is dying a death, um, except it feels like what what's going on in radical orthodoxy, I think, is in some ways kind of similar to what's going on in the sort of broader, like, right-wing reaction that's going on at the moment. Um, and um, I've been thinking about it lately in terms of, like, a crisis of capitalism. And um, so uh, Nancy Fraser talks about kind of uh, the, the crises that you get in capitalism around social reproduction, uh, that, you know, you have this kind of basic contradiction in capitalism where, on the one hand, what capitalism wants to do is constantly take away the resources that people have for surviving uh, to pay people less and less. Um, but at some point that runs into the fact that capitalism also needs people alive in order to continue being exploited. So you get these kind of different crises in capitalism that are essentially crises of social reproduction, crises of, of people's ability to survive in order to keep being exploited by capitalism. And I think in some ways what you see going on at the moment is one of those crises. Capitalism is in crisis. And I think that that in different ways, both progressive forms of Christianity and kind of conservative right-wing reactions, both are responses to that. Um, and I think that one of the things you see in, in progressive Christianity at the minute, uh, which you see actually when you have, so in the Victorian era, like early industrial capitalism, you have this crisis. Uh, people in the UK, for example, are like working in factories, like people are dying really young, women and children are like losing limbs, all of this kind of thing. Uh, and you get this kind of moral panic uh, and uh, people start to worry about the um, about the fact that people are dying. I think you see that um, in lots of ways. You definitely see it in the UK. There's this kind of real rise of progressive Christian concern about people are dying. How do we help them survive? Um, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury talking about um, Wonga. He did a couple of years ago, which is this kind of particularly predatory payday loan company. But I think really what animates a lot of that stuff is not 
is not an opposition to capitalism as such. It's a concern that capitalism is undermining the conditions of its own reproduction. So Justin Welby wasn't saying we should abolish uh, usury, we should stop people charging interest. He was saying this particular form of predatory loans undermines the legitimacy of a system which is fundamentally built on indebtedness. Um, but then you also kind of as part of that get this uh, a kind of right wing reaction, I guess, uh, to that crisis, which I guess in some ways you see like with the rise of fascism. Um, I think you see it in radical orthodoxy. I think one of the things going on in radical orthodoxy is this kind of post-colonial nostalgia that as kind of things are shifting with capitalism in order to make it viable, that people who had a certain amount of power maybe don't have quite as much power. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, like in lots of ways, things are changing a lot. Capitalism is undermining all sorts of conditions that are important to us. And I think one way that people respond to that is to kind of want to violently reassert certain kinds of clear uh, social divisions that we associate with a time when things were more stable and um, our positions of power were under threat. And I think one one of the things you are seeing at the moment um, in, in the West is that uh, the position of middle class people in lots of ways is worsening, that uh, things that we thought were kind of guaranteed to us are no longer guaranteed to us. And, and so you can respond to that by kind of concern that you get in progressive Christianity, you can respond to it by kind of uh, rage uh, and this kind of desire to re regain lost glory and lost power, which I think you see in radical orthodoxy. I think you see also in, I don't know if you guys are, know about Nigel Bigger, this kind of Oxford professor who's been doing this whole kind of theological project about the ethics of empire. And like, wasn't it great when we ran the world? Um, but I think you also yeah. have this third option, right? Which is to be like, uh, let's destroy capitalism. <laughs> it seems so obvious when you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, hopefully we can, uh, hopefully everyone else catches on soon that we can just destroy capitalism. That sounds great. Um, well, yeah. uh, this project is so cool because it's, it seems, I don't, I don't know, I'm watching from a distance for sure, but it does seem like it's kind of the culmination of a lot of different ideas that you've been working out in some of the articles you've published. Um, do you have any, yeah. do you have any big ideas for what you're going to do next or any other projects on the horizon? Yeah. So I have, uh, I have an article that I'm trying to finish up at the moment. So one of the things I do in the introduction is uh, to the book is talk a bit about the the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, and um, which has these uh, women who are all sort of like on the borderlines of sexual respectability, who are trading sex or working as sex workers or uh, taking various kinds of going and sleeping on the threshing floor at night. Um, so sort of taking uh, risks. Uh, so I have an article sort of where I work out some of the sort of gestures that are in the book um, towards thinking about like this relationship between between ideas of sexual respectability and sexual propriety um, and how we think about Christian identity um, and particularly sort of thinking about um, thinking about that in relation to contemporary discourse around um, sex work and uh, yeah so uh, a thing about the women in Jesus's genealogy and sex and work and marriage uh, is a kind of small project that I'm hoping to finish up quite soon um, and then my next big project um, is going to be about um, angels and cyborgs um, and uh, essentially my argument is that uh, what you find um, in Dionysius um, in kind of classical Christian theology is that angels have this kind of political theological 
function they uh manage the world on behalf of god so they act as kind of uh ways of thinking about bureaucracy they let us think about what it means to be human to be embodied to work all of these kinds of questions but what you get with the kind of privatization and feminization of religion that follows on the reformation is that they kind of lose that function uh and my argument hunch argument is that cyborgs kind of come to take on that role so sort of thinking about angels and cyborgs as kind of uh structurally homologous or related figures for thinking about questions about like work and government um, and then kind of using that to think about some of the narratives that you get around uh, modernity and post-modernity and disenchantment and re-enchantment and magic and sort of trying to so you get this narrative that um, you know what happens in the reformation is that people used to live in this world that was full of kind of spirits and fairies and um magical beings and then people stop believing in that uh, and either that's a good thing because it lets us be scientific and rational or it's a bad thing because we lose a sense of wonder um, and so I'm trying to think about what a materialist account of that process of disenchantment would be kind of drawing on um, Silvia Federici and um, Silvia Winter and a bunch of other people. That sounds very Dang. cool. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. does. <laughs> you, you do have an article about that already, don't you? Like a, you have an article about cyber yeah. angels? Yeah, it's called Machines of Loving Grace, and it's in the Journal for Cultural and Religious Theory, I think. Uh, and yeah, it's sort of a first sketch um, of those ideas. Um, yeah, but I'm hoping to kind of work out a bit more fully. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Marika. Um, the book is really fantastic. And uh, yeah, we <laughs> we were both talking about how, before we got you on the wine, um, we're not like super interested in theology generally. And <laughs> we felt like certain parts are like, oh no, this is going to be a lot. Uh, and then it turned out to be genuinely interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. Great job. <laughs> um, you know, when you like... <laughs> When you like, when you open up the table of contents and you see like the word Dionysius in the first uh, chapter, it's like, oh boy, I don't know about this. Um, I, w I was promised a lot of weird material stuff, and then it turns out that you totally deliver. So thank you uh, for um, sending us the book, and we hope that everybody else gets a chance to check it out. I think there's a lot going on. Uh, it's not just a book about Zizek. In fact, um, I would say the the Zizek is maybe why you might buy buy the book, but there's lots and lots of other reasons that will kind of keep you there. Uh, there's a lot happening uh, between these two covers. Cool. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to our Patreon and get some episodes early and listen to the Damnificast and get into our book club. We got so many good things on our Patreon right now. Um, and if you uh, even if you subscribe to us for five dollars, we'll give you a cool Magnificast pin. I'll send it to you with a handwritten letter that says "Thank you so much," and I'll forge Dean's signature, and you won't even know it. Well, you will now. But uh, okay, cool. Uh, also, you can follow us on Twitter at the Magnificast. Um, and uh, did I mention ever we have a cool new website? It's themagnificast.com. There you go. Um, thanks to Amaria Armstrong for the intro music, and thanks to the Logical Spoon for their outro music. Um, cool. We'll see you next time. I don't wanna get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth, and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside.